welcome to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, and this is the third in our special Exploring Genesis series, which has actually been very, very popular. I'm quite surprised. I've had so many requests. Can we get Jamie back on the show? Can we do more of these? So I'd like to once again introduce the Reverend Dr. Jamie Franklin, and thanks so much for doing it again, Jamie. Nick, it's a pleasure, as always, to be with you. Uh, I always enjoy your company online. Yet to meet you in person, but feel like I know you, feel like we're good friends, so... uh, Really looking forward to this one. Is that true? We haven't actually met in person. That's weird. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think that so. That is strange. I just thought we had. That's so weird. I'm, I'm living such an online life now. <laughs> Maybe there is no real Nick. <laughs> just, Maybe you're just, just a, a, you're just a virtual cipher of a human being. Yeah, no, Daniel yes. on our Irreverend podcast. Um, I didn't. I, I made that show with him for, I think, about a year and a half before meeting him in, in person. So it was, it was strange because we had such a deep relationship. We've been through so much. Uh, so when we met in person, it was like, you know, a long lost brother or something. But, uh, <laughs> never met him before. That's weird. Yeah. And I, that's actually a great point. Jamie is, of course, the host of the Irreverent Podcast. I should have said that in your intro. Ah, I right, failed to right. mention it every time. Host of the Irreverent Podcast. And he is a vicar. So he knows his stuff. And he's done all the work. Well, and he, well, well, I, well, well, well I, I mean, look, Nick, I don't want to be, I don't want to have false modesty because there are some areas I know bits about. I'm not an Old Testament scholar. But I love the book of Genesis and I have been reading up on this and getting the views of the patristic fathers and so on and so forth. And I'm sitting, I'm surrounded by commentaries. So I'm standing on the, on the shoulders of giants uh, to, to use a phrase uh, that was, uh, who was that? Was that Isaac Newton? I'm using, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm standing on the shoulders of giants to use Isaac Newton or indeed Oasis's phrase. Yes. And it was in an REM song, which is where I, I think of it from. So that's, that's my level. That um, right? But today... We are going through Noah, we've decided. So if you listen to the other ones, and why wouldn't you? We did a sort of general one about the start of Genesis, and then we did Cain and Abel last time. And so this is our third one, and we're moving on to do Noah. We're just going in order, really. And it's quite interesting to do Noah because it's such, obviously, a famous story. And I'd say, apart from the nativity and perhaps Adam and Eve, it's a kind of the sort of story that every six-year-old knows. you know. And it's just so, but, but then who actually goes back and reads it apart from, us, <laughs> yeah, basically. yeah, yeah, yeah. Some I people, see. but it's you know, a, people think they know the story, but they actually don't. Uh, yeah, it's an amazing story. It's got so many interesting details and um, moral lessons to teach us, spiritual lessons, spiritual and moral lessons to teach us. It's an incredible story spanning Genesis 6 to Genesis 9, really. And yeah, um, yeah it's an amazing story. And Jamie will be teaching us a lot of moral lessons today. <laughs> so let, let's start. And um, we're going to start from chapter 6 in the uh, English Standard Version. And this one is titled Increasing Corruption on Earth, because they give them these little titles, of course, and some people don't agree with that. But And it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Mm. Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We could maybe pause there or we could do the next line, but the point is, I'll do the next line. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. 
but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I ended up reading the whole thing because it's so good and there's so much in there. But the point I wanted to start with was the Nephilim, which I believe you've been doing some research on, Jamie, but it's, it's, it's so interesting that are these things linked, the fact that angels basically came down and sort of mated with humans, as far as I can tell, yeah, and because they saw they were attractive. And this was a very bad thing. And so bad that it then immediately led to to God recognizing that the man was just only evil continually. But but I can't tell exactly how those how far those two things are related, or if they are related. It seems like they are. What is your take on that? To be honest, Nick, the 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 record the um, connection just froze for a second. So I I heard all the stuff you said about angels. I didn't quite hear what you said after that. Is there a link between? Were you saying is there a link between angels and then the? Then the flood, the, the judgment and, of the flood, is that what you're saying? Yeah, the wickedness that, that God yeah. sees, is that all stemming there from the angels mating with humans or is it? Is, how much is that a causation? Okay, yeah. So, I mean, I think it's part of this um, increase in corruption that's been going on in the earth because we, in our last episode, we talked about um, we talked about the way that the sin of Abel was then sort of replicated and multiplied in some of his descendants, like Lamech, for example, who who specifically references Abel. And he says, well, you know, if you think Abel's bad, you know, I'm going to be like, you know, however, whatever he says, 77 times worse. Um, but this is a really interesting passage because when you look at the church fathers, they're actually divided on what's going on here. So it's by no means unanimous that this is talking about um, about angels. So there are basically two lines of interpretation. The first one, as you say, is that the um, the sons of God here in, in verse two refers to demonic spirits, fallen angels that mate with the daughters of man and create this kind of uh, demonic hybrid called the Nephilim. And the name, the word Nephilim just means giants. Okay. And then uh, yeah, that- And in the King James, it is just literally giants they go yeah, with. Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's a reference there to the book of Enoch, um, which is- uh, an intertestamental uh, apocalyptic book. It's not. It's not canonical, um, but it is something that um, is referenced in the New Testament in the book of Jude. I think it is. Anyway, that says in chapter six, and it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters, and the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. Now, David Pawson in his video says, because this is quoted in the New Testament, because the book is referenced in the New Testament, um, the book of Enoch, to Enoch, uh, therefore it's, it's, it's reliable. So he takes that as reliable. And he just says an interesting thing, actually, that this is a kind of, um, it's a sort of satanic inversion of the, of the virgin birth. Because, you know, in the virgin birth, you have the Holy Spirit, as it were, impregnating Mary with, with Christ. So you do, have a, you do have spirit and flesh coming together in order to, procreate and the same principle is at work here it's just in a in a demonic way um so that's one way of thinking about it one way of looking at it um saint augustine uh, didn't see it that way so he said that um it was mo- it was more likely that this is actually talking about men and not angels and that relates to the other way of interpreting this which is that it's simply uh, an example of the godly line of seth so remember we talked about how there were these lines there's a the line of seth and then there's the line of cain so there's a godly line an ungodly line which kind of runs through the the whole the whole story of scripture really so it's the it's the godly line of seth marrying the undo- ungodly daughters of cain so there's a kind of you know an intermarriage between between the righteous and the unrighteous there 
and that this is sort of indicative of the corruption that's going on, the sort of ongoing corruption that's on the earth. And then the Nephilim there uh, is just referring to, you know, the fact that these are large. I mean, that's what Augustine says. He says these are just basically large people. They're just giants. And they're, and we know, we all know. I mean, Augustine literally says, oh, you know, we all know large people. They're just like that. You know, we all know tall people. Um, so he's a bit more sort of, um, you know, sort of common sense about it. Um, yeah, it's, so it's so it's quite an interesting one. However you see it, it's clearly linked to what comes next. So if it's if it's a kind of demonic race of, um, you know, half human, half angel Nephilim, then it makes sense that if they're on the earth kind of causing all kinds of havoc and chaos, that God would need to wipe them out. But then it also makes sense that if you have this kind of inter intermingled, intermingling between righteous and unrighteous, then that could also contribute to the kind of ensuing wickedness and violence and sexual immorality and so on on the earth. So whatever it is, it's 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 the straw that breaks the camel's back. You know, God has to stop it. Um, and and the flood is the flood is is the answer, basically. That's that's why the flood happens. I personally quite like the um you know, the fallen angels interpretation, it sort of makes sense of the flood, I think, because the flood is very extreme, isn't it? You know, we'd kill everything. And it would make sense, like if there are these kind of this, these demonic entities on the on the earth um, that have, you know, this sort of horrible kind of hybrid race of, of, of satanic monsters, it would kind of make sense that God would need to do something like the flood in order to absolutely wipe them out and start, start the whole thing off again. So, yeah, yeah I don't know if that makes sense. It's such a strange version though isn't it if it is just literally that and that's the kind of thing people won't be expecting in the story of noah if they've learned it as a kid yeah but um i don't remember that bit in at school but um <laughs> you, and you unfortunately like you said they, they can i had a problem with your connection as well so i missed it because i think you referenced porson but uh by the way we will have connection attacks throughout this which is a satanic attack on of course. our wi-fi of course it is. yeah um but um but porson just says between two and three hundred angels were sent to look after the people this is in the book of enoch and ended up producing this hybrid, the Nephilim. So he just he goes with that, and he says it's the beginning of occultism, and they taught women witchcraft. Is that in Enoch, or is that just Porson riffing again? Oh, I don't know why he says that. That's interesting, isn't it? About um, Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at Enoch now, and yeah, it does say there were 200. So he's getting that from, he's getting that directly from um, the book of Enoch. Why does he say it's an occultism? I wonder, it because it's the first sort of reference to human beings kind of um, convening with, demonic spirits presumably well maybe there's something specifically about occultism in enoch i don't know i uh, yeah i don't see it i think it's probably just i think it's probably just just that he's saying that this is basically this is what occultism is isn't it it's human beings kind of contacting demonic spirits um convening with them or or uh, relating to them in some way and this is the first example of that in scripture does you know there's no there's nothing like this that happens previously so i, I think it's probably what he means okay yeah um but it's yeah, like you say, it's certainly an extreme reaction to say, I will blot out man. So God decides I'm just going to get rid of all humans because they're so awful and they're only and, evil. And animals. And animals, and animals yeah. yeah. They're only yeah. evil continually. Yeah, yeah. What, what have the poor animals done? That's a good question, actually. Well, the animals haven't really done anything. It's just that man is, throughout Scripture, the priest of all creation. So, you know, Psalm chapter 8, for example, it says that man has been set slightly lower by lower than the angels by god and he's been given dominion over the beasts of the earth the, the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and so on and that's obviously what it says in genesis chapter one as well so it's like the animals are represented by human beings and what happens to human beings happens to the animals and so we see the animals being blotted out in chapter six but then we also see in chapter nine god making a new covenant 
with Noah, um, which the animals are included in as well. So it's you know what happens to what happens to man happens also to the animals because man is the representative. He's the priest. He's the intermediary between God and, and the animals, and that's part of our role on this earth is to have dominion over the creation and to steward it, which includes animal life, which we see here. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. All right. So let's carry on. Then the next section is titled Noah and the flood. And it says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh has corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with, with the earth. Make your, So that's interesting. You, you decide he's destroying the earth with the earth. Is that, mm-hmm. is that significant? Just, just, as sort of, just as a sense of irony? Yeah. So, what, so I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. So flesh there meaning... Um, human beings and animals, presumably. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Yeah, I think it's just referring to it's referring back to flesh, isn't it? So it's, it just means human and animals, humans and animals. I think. Okay. Yeah. And here he says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make yeah. rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it: the length of the ark three hundred cubits, its breadth 50, fifty cubits, and its height thirty cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. I like that because just because he gives the specifics, yeah, I always yeah. find it interesting. It's like just DIY from God. And, <laughs> and um, Ikea. Yeah, and Pawson <laughs> points out, David Pawson, that it's, uh, who we've been using throughout this, by the way, everyone, the Unlocking the Bible series, just because it's handy. Um, he, he actually had a friend who made this boat according to the, the uh, instructions in the Bible and said it worked. He thought, look, God knows best. So it is interesting that that's in <laughs> there. Is that just yeah. like your dad sort of telling you this is how you do it? So then if you don't, you will be like, I told you to make it 50 cubits. <laughs> what do you make of that? Is it just pretty straightforward? Yeah, no, I think it is. I mean, look, Nick, I've, I've, I'll be honest with you. Like, I just take this story completely at face value. I think it happens. You know, I'm not sure. You know, there are questions of, as to whether the flood co- covered the whole earth or whether it was just a, a, a geographical region. But yeah, I think when I think God knows. God knows how to build a boat. He knows what, what's best. And if you build it according to his instructions, it will go well. But there is... Um, I mean, in all of this, the, there's a there's a deep spiritual aspect to it, of course, because this is about Noah being obedient to God and following what God says exactly. And because of his obedience, Noah is saved through the ark. And of course, the story is is so resonant because this is this is true for us. It's always true for us that if we do what God says, if we obey him, then we will be saved from the storm of judgment, which is coming upon all people. And not just the storm of judgment, but the storm of disaster as well. And I was thinking, uh, you know, I mean, there are all sorts of resonances here. But one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, the story of the, that, that Jesus tells in, in the Sermon on the Mount. So, you know, you've got, you've got the man who builds his house on the sand, and then you've got the man who builds his house on the rock. And the floods come and the winds beat against the houses and one stands and the other one falls. You know, this is a this is a spiritual principle. If you construct your house on the rock, which is Christ, which is obedience to God, you know, you can you build the ark. When the when the flood comes, you will be saved. You will be okay. But if you don't, you're going to be swept away by God's judgment. And 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 therefore things will not go well for you. So there's something very, very uh 
deep about this, you know, and that question of like literalness or not, I mean, I do think, you know, I do think it's important, but it's important not to be distracted from the spiritual lesson that this, this story is, is trying to teach us, which is about, as I say, obedience. It's about the inevitability of judgment. Uh, it's about the inevitability of death and so on and so forth. And the only way we can really survive these things is, is through building an ark, as it were, and not building an ark in the kind of Jordan Peterson sense of like, just, you know, sorting your life out and making everything work for you, although that kind of stuff is important, but actually being saved through Christ. And of course, the patristic authors all interpret the flood, sorry, all interpret the ark to be a picture of variously the church, Jesus Christ, uh, the, the sacrament of the Eucharist, or uh, occasionally the Virgin Mary as well. Although I think that's probably slightly less rare in the church, uh, slightly more rare in the church fathers. But anyway, you, nevertheless, you see the point. Just the other, the others, just a small thing. I, I, I think it's worth mentioning in, in verse eight. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There's sort of um, question there about why it was that Noah was saved. Uh, why why he found that favor another word there could be grace why did noah find grace in the eyes of the lord and uh, most of the commentaries i read on this will say that that god chose to bestow grace upon noah uh, not because noah was more deserving than anyone else but because god decided to set his favor upon him and save him as an example of his mercy and his grace and that it was as a result of the fact that god as it were placed his favor upon Noah, that Noah then responded with obedience. And many people see that as a kind of type of, of salvation, that we're not saved because we are righteous, but we're chosen by God according to his grace. And then as a result of his grace towards us, then we then we act out of obedience towards him. Um, so there's there's an interesting thing there. Does, does verse 8 cause verse 9, i.e. does the fact that Noah... Uh, found favor in the eyes of the Lord cause the fact that in verse 9 he's called a, called a righteous man or does verse 9 cause verse 8 does the fact that he was a righteous man cause God to show favor to him and and this this the interpretation that I'm suggesting is that he finds favor he finds grace in the eyes of the Lord and that makes him a righteous man and not the other way around does that does that make sense it, it does make sense and uh, yeah it's grace in the King James and favor in the English standard King James always yeah. a little more poetic uh, but same thing. But you, the question, the question there that comes to my mind is, what what does that mean for free will? Of course, if and I know there's all kinds of yeah. things like this in Christianity and Calvinism and all, and all these. But if he's just given it by God, then what, surely the whole point is his righteousness, which he worked on himself. But you're saying it was just given to him by God, anyways. So it's all he could do, really. And then why was the obedience not not just given to him by God? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, there's a there's a huge conversation here, isn't there? And and to be honest with you, the the interpretation that I've just given does lend itself to a, a sort of more Calvinist or deterministic way of looking at things. And to be honest with you, I wouldn't want to push things that far. Um, I the way I the way I see it is that uh, Noah is a kind of representative of all humanity in the sense that um, we are all offered. God's favor, God's grace in Jesus Christ. And it's up to us whether we respond to it with faith and obedience or not. Um, I don't believe that these things are um, predetermined in the sense that we have no say in it. I think that our freedom cooperates or not with the saving grace of, of God in Jesus Christ. Um, so I wouldn't be as hardcore as Calvinists on that, you know, because what, what Calvinists say is, um, 
that people are chosen or not, not depending on their choice, but depending on God's inscrutable will, which which uh, is is decided outside of time, and there's nothing you can do to change it one way or another. And the reason that they say this is because um, it's because it glorifies God to choose who is saved and to choose who is condemned to hell forever. Um, and that this is really the answer to the question of why is there suffering and evil and, ju- and judgment and hell? The Calvinistic answer, um, which I you know, I have to be honest with you, I, I don't agree with it and I think it's completely wrong. But the Calvinistic answer is that the reason that we have these things is because God ordains them to be so because it brings him greater glory than if they wouldn't exist. Um, I complete, I think that's completely wrong. I think the reason that there's sin and evil and death and judgment and hell is because of our sin, which we've freely chosen. I don't think it's because God um, God predetermines it for his glory from, from eternity. So I, I would want to resist that. And I, I mean, I could go into more detail. I've actually written, it, written about this in the book that I, I never mention on any of my podcasts ever. But um, I think it's a very, very mistaken view of God uh, and uh, and a, de- a deviation from the Catholic tradition uh, that that comes really from John Calvin, and it's a kind of early modern heresy in that sense. I'm gonna I'm gonna annoy all the Calvinists now. They're gonna they're because Calvinists. The other thing about Calvinists, Nick, is I, I love them, but they're very, very certain that they're right about everything, and that if you reject Calvinism, then you're basically not a Christian. So I'm really, um, you know, I'm really I'm being very sort of uh, I'm really dissing them in what I've just said, but I'll, I'll stand by it. What's the book? My book. Have I never mentioned it on this podcast no. before? Oh, that's because that's because I never mention it, Nick. Uh, yeah, my book is called uh, Charles Taylor and Anglican Theology, Aesthetic Ecclesiology. It's a, it's a, it's a basically my, my PhD, but just um, in book form. Okay. And it's a thrilling read and it will only cost you a hundred euros on Amazon. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but no, I do have a section on, on, um, on Calvinism in it or really on on the kind of calvinistic view of god um and i i just yeah i don't think it's the way to go to be honest with you but what did you mean when you said our freedom cooperates with god or you said something like that i didn't quite get the distinction maybe we'll be here all day on this if we do but no it's okay no i think it's important um so the way that the way that um god's freedom and, and human freedom was always understood in the kind of medieval period and before is that um, God ordains everything that happens, but as part of his ordaining everything that happens, he also ordains that human beings have freedom, that they have free will. Now, that doesn't mean that we have complete freedom to do anything we want all the time, and that we're never, we're never acted upon by any external pressures, because anyone can see that that's the case. You know, that if you are, I don't know, if you feel tired, you're more likely to go to sleep. You know, your will isn't entirely free in that sense. But we do have a degree of freedom, and specifically so when we respond to God, you know, both in a direct sense, but also in terms of obedience or disobedience uh, or not. So God wills everything that happens, but as part of his will, he also wills that human beings have a certain amount of freedom within that. And so so that freedom, God's freedom and human freedom, it kind of operates on two levels. Uh, the medieval authors like... Um, Thomas Aquinas would talk about like primary and secondary causality. So in a sense, God is the the primary cause of everything that that happens. But then um, 
creatures operate with a degree of freedom, which we could call kind of secondary causality or, or something like that. Now, what happens in the modern period, which which uh, uh, the Reformation is, is certainly a part of the, the modern period, and, and, and John Calvin is a thoroughly kind of early modern thinker. He's not in, oh, this is going to really annoy them, but he's not really a Christian thinker in that sense. He's a harbinger of secular modernity. But um, Calvin collapses the distinction between primary and secondary causation. And he just says, no, God causes everything that happens full stop. Like human beings don't have any role in it at all. Um, and so so the, the answer to the question of why there's hell, for example, or why there's sin must be that God causes it because human beings don't cause anything. Um but as I say, that's a, that's a collapsing of the the two categories which were always held to exist. And the, I mean, if you just think about it, must exist because how how could it be the case that you know read read through scripture and you see people making decisions about things, and they're they're clearly there are clearly moral judgments that are placed upon people. God judges people for sin. God rewards people for righteousness. And the reason he does that is because those people have are responsible for the decisions that they've made. They're not. It's not God making decisions and then punishing people for the decisions he's made. I mean, that's complete absurdity. But that's essentially what what Calvin says. And then his explanation as to why this happens is because God it somehow glorifies God. And I just think that that's nonsense. And you know, just to just to while I'm while I'm riffing on this, I might as well just say this. Um, it actually turns God into into a demonic figure like more like satan because god is no longer bound to do um good things by his own character uh, which is again the the classical understanding of god that god is free in the sense that god is free to to manifest his own perfections so you know this is why god can't lie for example or god can't do evil is because he can't contradict who he is fundamentally and that's what freedom actually means for god uh, for Calvin, that's not right. For for Calvin, God can literally do anything He wants. He can lie. Uh, he can he can um, he can ordain that something he had ordained in the past as evil was now good, and and vice versa. And as I say, I think that that's actually more like a kind of satanic being than God. And and it literally makes the will the primary aspect of God's character, and not, for example, His love or his benevolence he's just he's just like a willing machine who can will literally anything and as i say for calvin this this glorifies god but for uh, you know from from the classical perspective this isn't glorifying to god at all this is more like a kind of demonic or a satanic being so again sorry about that calvinists I, I you know i do i do think that calvinists are real christians and everything like that and i don't want to sort of diss them but i, th- I do think it's a very mistaken way of thinking about things well, we're going to have to stick a warning on this podcast now, like a parental <laughs> advisory, but a Calvinist advisory, because Jamie's just dissed them so hard for about 10 minutes. Um, but very interesting. We're learning a lot. Um, all right, maybe we should press on in the actual text. And um, I was talking about the qubits. We did that. And um, Oh, yeah. So the qubits, just one other thing. So St. Augustine, I found out about this, that Augustine cites origin on the qubits. Now, I think a qubit, is it says here it's about 18 inches or something like that and so origin apparently said that these were not those kind of qubits which would but they were geometric qubits which apparently are several several times more than the normal qubit so anyway the point is they are might actually be a lot bigger than it sort of makes out here according to augustine so it has to be pretty big wouldn't it if you think about it to get all those animals on um 
Yeah, okay. It would have to be big, yeah. yeah. So make it with lower second and third decks. He talks about the decks and the cubits. Then God goes on, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. The breath of life, sorry. It's quite dark in here. Everything yeah. that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Makes sense. Of the mm -hmm. birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you and keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And by the mm. way, they really need a term for insect in the Old Testament because it's constantly every creeping thing that creepeth upon the <laughs> ground and on the earth and creeping. And it's fun, but it's like, guys, just insect will save us a lot of word count here. Um, sorry to just be flippant, but just, you know, no, no, we, all, we all bring true. different things to the podcast. Um, creeping things. Is there anything to say, though? I just want to press on and go on. Going to no, no, let's let's carry on. I think it would be good to talk about flood stories, flood myths in a minute, but yes. that might be better I've when we actually get to the flood. Well. Yeah, um, yeah, not as good as what you have on it. The, uh, then the Lord <laughs> said, to, <laughs> "Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. I mean, do we need to go into all this? This is just there's some important bits in a minute you're just basically saying bring all the animals and detailing it yeah just one just one thing so seven seven pairs of clean animals a pair of the animals that are not clean that's because in chapter 8 verse 20 he's going to sacrifice clean animals to god so that's why he takes seven pairs of clean animals but only one pair of unclean animals okay just so you know just interesting detail okay and it goes on a bit about the male and female and a bit of repetition for in this, for in seven days i will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So that phrase, yeah. again, which does sort of point to what you're saying, that Noah's obedience is kind of a key theme here. Yeah. Um, can I just, can I add on that? Just, I don't want to miss this. There's a lovely reference to, to Noah in, in the New Testament in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, which is the, it's sometimes called the, uh, the heroes of faith, where the writers of the Hebrews go through all these people who demonstrated faith uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Hebrews 11 verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. As a beautiful, and in some ways that sort of demonstrates what I was saying earlier, is that um, Noah didn't just believe something cognitively. He didn't just you know believe that God exists. He, he believed what God said was true and that what God said was going to happen was going to happen. And he demonstrated his faith by obeying what God told him to do. By this, he condemned the world. Now, I don't know what was going on, but presumably, you know, he was building an ark in the middle of the land for 100 years. And people were, you know, mocking him and asking him, you know, why are you doing that? And he's telling them, you know, judgment is coming. You need to construct your own arks. And again, it's just a, it's a, a picture of the life of faith, which we're called to lead. Obedience to God, construct the ark condemn the world if it mocks you i just think that's great okay excellent and the 100 years is interesting as well because as we get to the next line noah was yeah. 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth that's why he had time to build it for that long because he was yeah very old so yeah so that relates to uh, verse, uh, chapter 5 verse 32 after noah was 500 years old and then um 
yeah, seven, six. No, it was 600 years old. So it's 100 years later, yeah. Yes. And maybe we should have in- included the Methuselah star because I can't remember if it comes up again. But Methuselah lives till 969 because Enoch had said that when he dies, it'll happen, which was which is what yeah. Methuselah literally means, meaning the yeah. flood. And it, when Methuselah dies at 969 years old, that is the day it begins to rain. But I think that's in five as well, so we might have missed that. Yeah. Or we. Yeah, well, that's that, yeah. You've made the point. And and Methuselah, Methuselah is the oldest man who's ever lived, which yeah. is a demonstration of God's patience. Like he waited yeah. that long yeah. for people to repent, and they didn't repent. Yeah. Okay, so it goes on. Noah was 600 years old when a flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, (laughs) went into the ark with Noah as God had had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. I'm just seeing how much we need here. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day, very specific, 17th of February of the month, on that day, all the fountains... (laughs) of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, <laughs> insects, and every, every bird insect. according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. So mm-hmm. it's, it's just very, there's a lot of the, the same stuff about the animals. It tends to repeat a lot. But um, do you want to add anything yet? Well, I, I mean, yes. Uh, so as you say, these are all very specific things, aren't they? The 600th year of Noah's life, second month, 17th day of the month. Um, and that this kind of detail occurs within the text. So I think that's pretty good indicator that the person who wrote this text, Moses, um, I believe it was Moses anyway, um, that he that this was a real thing that happened and it was actually documented. This is not a myth in the sense that it doesn't have, it's not vague. It's not like in the depths of history to these people. It's a specific dates and times that this these things happened. You know, the rain fell 40 days and 40 nights. So there's that. And then just, you know, the other thing I would say, and again, you know, just to be a bit topical, look at look at how many times the, the phrase male and female appears all over this text. You know, it's it's re- that biological reality is written into creation all the way through, both in human life and in animal life. Um, it's just, it's, as I say, it's just quite topical, isn't it? No trans people in Noah. They weren't <laughs> on the ark, guys. They were no victimized. They were, yeah. <laughs> that's why there's so much violence against them in the culture. They've been victimized ever since the ark, not allowed. Yes. On it. Of course, yeah. So that's why that's why there's not been more trans people, guys. They were left off the ark just to get that clear. But um, yeah, on the flood itself, Pawson talks about it's an open question whether it happened and whether it was really global or just in the area known at the time, i.e. Mesopotamia. He also points out some have claimed to have found the flood. They found like remnants of floods in that area. And he says, well, they found a flood. It may not be the flood. And here's a little thought I had today. Eco zealots now think that, or climate zealots now think there is going to be a great flood. They constantly talk yeah. about the water levels rising across the earth. These people think the Bible's primitive, and yet they constantly talk about basically a great flood throughout the earth. Yeah. What is the sea levels rising if not that? And um, yeah. not knowing the Bible, by the way, they ignore the covenant God makes later in Noah not to do this ever again. So the eco zealots, being godless, they think one, there's going to be a big flood because they're not as sophisticated as they think. They're actually just it's the same sort of thinking. 
as the as the Bible it was already dealt with. But they also think they also ignore the fact that God said it won't come. So I don't know. I just if you yeah. were really a Christian and you really listened to the Old Testament, you'd be like, well, God said it's not going to come again. But if you're an eco zealot, you're just constantly talking about your own version of the flood story. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's almost like there's something, uh, you know, a sort of. Uh, I don't want to be too esoteric, but you know the kind of Jungian, and I don't want to be too like Jordan Peterson either. But Jungian like the kind of Jungian, of the <laughs> the, you know, like the Jungian uh, subconscious. Uh, you know that, that culturally, um, this is it. This is like this story is in the memory, the cultural memory of, of humanity. Like whether people are aware of it or not, um, you know, there there are, and I'm interested to hear what you've got here. But there there are clearly flood stories that have that come from the ancient world all over the all over the kind of Mediterranean and Mesopotamian world, um, and it might be even more primitive than that. The the eco alarmist faction do sort of sense the need for a kind of cleansing of the world or a judgment and i think probably it's a kind of uh, you know like many people talked about it's a kind of secularized kind of imminentized version of of christianity isn't it uh, that's their judgment on humanity is you know the see you know it's, it's kevin costner's water world isn't it so and as Paulson yeah. talks about it's always other people we want to get rid of he said haven't we felt like that we, you know men are people are evil let's get rid of them but it's always other yeah. people and i've noticed yeah. in a lot of these left-wing movements and the climate movement there's a sort of a, a sort of genocidal instinct against humanity they want to basically kill everyone who you know when they talk about overpopulation or they talk about all this climate stuff it comes down to always oh, too many people well, who are you going to get rid of then? Is it you? Yeah. No, oh, it's, you oh, it's other people. Yeah. You're not going to kill yourself. Yeah. So it's always other people you want to get rid of when you want. Yeah. Especially the depopulation nutters. It's like, it's a genocidal impulse. And it's an impulse. I'm great. I, when people talk about the earth being under threat or the, or the, the planet, they always actually, they don't mean the planet because the planet will be okay. They always just mean hu- humans, even the, the yeah. climate people. And yet they seem to want to hate humans and get rid of all humans. So I always, it always seems to me what they mean is, they want to be an elite that somehow survives in some eco paradise while everyone else is sort of disappears. Yeah. I had a friend when I was, uh, when I was at Oxford, I had a friend who was doing an MA and he used to complain to me about all the people he, he was doing some politics degree. And he, he uh, used to complain to me about all the, all the people in his classes who would say that there needs to be quotas for the university because it's too elitist. And he would always say to them, well, you know, who's going to give up their places? Are you going to do it? Yeah. You know, because you're still, you're still here. You know, yeah. um, I'm not obviously not suggesting anyone, kills themselves because i don't i don't agree with this whole ideology but it is a it is a suicidal um nihilistic kind of um, self-hating ideology yeah. uh which is yeah it's, it's shockingly common actually i mean J- john gray talks about it in his books straw dogs approvingly uh david attenborough has described the the human beings as a as a plague upon the earth the the trope of humanity as a cancer upon the earth has been um argued for in, in numerous academic papers, like making a serious argument that humanity is analogous to a cancer. It's uh yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a very, very uh, extreme kind of um, self self hatred. Yeah. Uh, you know who else yeah, said very... that was the agents in the matrix and they were the bad guys. Yeah. Human beings yeah. are a cancer. It's like, guys, you might not be the good guys if you're saying this and you exactly. Yeah. And because you never mean yourself, it is like you say, genocidal. And well, you said suicide. I'm saying genocidal and nihilistic. Yeah. Yeah. It probably is more like that. Yes. Um, you are a plague. It's disgusting. You're a plague, Mr. Anderson. But also yeah. God here, could you say God is the kind of ultimate eco-zealot because he's saying, oh, I'm sick of you humans. I'm going to blot you out of the earth. He is kind of yeah. having a moment like that, isn't he? Yeah. Well, judgment is real, Nick. That's what I'm saying. They're intuiting something real. Like judgment is real. Uh, you know, if we if we sin against God, if we disobey Him, if we if we uh, uh, later we'll talk about uh, murder because that comes up in 
uh, chapter is it chapter eight chapter nine chapter nine uh, but yeah if you do these things you will incur the judgment of god and if 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 humanity as a whole does them if civilization as a whole rejects god rejects his order but then continues to live uh, upon the earth then they will in- incur judgment as they do in this story so i'm not i'm not against i'm not completely against everything the eco zealots say i just think it's i just think it's misdirected i do think i do think there is a judgment coming for humanity but it's a judgment that god will bring about not a judgment which will kind of come about through the environment yeah. rejecting us or won't come know. from the european union um or the uh, <laughs> wef okay so where was i up to the, oh yeah here i am and the lord shut him in the flood continued for 40 days on the earth the waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, so do, do you think we should we should say we should elaborate slightly on this thing that I said earlier? Um, that uh, this is not the only account of a of a of a globalized or at least a great flood that happened, uh, you know, upon the earth uh, that comes from from ancient times. So, the most famous flood myth, apart from the Bible, is in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, which is a, I, I think it's it was a Babylonian myth, which is it was discovered. I think on cuneiform tablets. I think it was in the twentieth century or something like that. It was discovered, but there are various other there are various other traditions which which speak about a catastrophic flood that covers all of the earth. So this is yet another reason to grant credence to the idea that something like this actually happened, and that this isn't just a made up story, because there are other cultures that actually have have. Um, not the same story, obviously, because they're different. They're, they're mythologized, but nevertheless, they still have this historic detail of this great flood covering the earth. Okay. So, you, did you say you had some? No, stuff all I had well? on that was was the overall note, literally from Paulson that, that you know it may or you know there's been various accounts and and was it just in Mesopotamia and blah blah that just as an overall note. That's all I had. I didn't have anything yeah. specific. I think the other thing to say about the historicity stuff, and this is something I'm, I, I think is, you know, I don't know as much about, and it sort of comes across as more speculative. But lots of um, six-day creationists think that the reason that you have like these sort of layers of sediment and everything like that isn't because the Earth is millions and millions of years old and it's built up over time, is because there was a catastrophic flood, and the flood, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to do violence to this this theory, but like. The flood basically did everything really, really quickly. It laid down all the sediment, really, really these layers of sediment, really, really quickly. Uh, killed all these animals really quickly, and you know that's why you have fossils in the layers of sediment in the way that that you do. It's, it's not because it's not millions of years. It's a catastrophic flood. But as I say, I just wanted to mention that because I've heard people say that a lot. It's not an area that I know all that much about. I believe that one. I've just heard it now, but I'm I believe yeah. it immediately. Um, yeah, well, it's a possibility, isn't it? I'm not, I'm not um, close-minded at all to, to the possibility that something like that is true. And I got slightly distracted, listener, because I, um, I accidentally got some blue tack on my Bible, which I felt very bad about, because I have a tiny <laughs> ball of blue tack blocking my webcam like Mark Zuckerberg. Because if Zuckerberg nice. does it, we should all do it. But then I like right. to play with it, 
just you know nervously and uh, not nervously but you know what I mean just nice but then I got it, it doesn't on the work if you Bible. take yeah it doesn't work if you take it off when you're recording a podcast no you take it off and you have to have the webcam on for that but just going oh, about your day-to-day okay. activities you don't want people okay. looking in you know uh-huh. seeing yeah. you reading your bible and stuff um but yeah it's uh anyway so I got booze on my bible now I feel bad um but that's, that's an aside right. but in case anyone wonder what I was up to there um okay so th- now we're up to chapter eight the flood subsides yeah. but doing well here we're doing well oh, we're getting through it um there's so much there's so well. much I know and we haven't even gotten to the it. death penalty that's coming guys um yeah. but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the water, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Yeah. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So that's when the flood ends with the olive leaf, which I do have a note yeah. on. The uh, ol- I have a note that it was a, it's a peace symbol to Christians, but not in the Jewish tradition. Uh, and, right. and of course, we got the phrase olive branch and olive leaf. And I, I was trying to figure out at one point how related they all were, but it was a couple of months ago, and I didn't really get anywhere. Um, but I, I did wonder about the dove. I mean, the dove's a peace symbol. Yeah as it says, but apparently it was not a peace symbol in the Jewish tradition at this time, so I'm a bit Well, I would take, I mean, the dove is, in the baptism of Christ, the dove, the Holy Spirit appears in the form of a dove, and I think it's, I think it's legitimate to see it in that way. Um, So also in uh, chapter 8, verse 1, God made a wind blow over the earth, so that's an allusion to the beginning of Genesis, Genesis 1, uh, verse 2. Uh, you know, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth, uh, the waters. So, yeah, God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. So it's an important theme to recognize in the story of Noah that this is about the destruction of the original creation and then the recreation. So it's it's another creation is happening here. So God is recreating the earth in an analogous way to the way he created it in the first place. But this time, you know, sin has been has been uh, eradicated from the earth. So. I think, you know, from the Christian perspective, uh, the Christian revelation, we can see here that the Holy Spirit is the one who is um, at work in the recreation of the earth. And the dove is a kind of picture of of the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't know. I suppose it's quite a poetic way of thinking about it, but kind of like, you know, uh, hovering over over the waters as as uh, as Noah releases uh, the, the dove from the uh, from the ark. Uh, yeah, the, the olive leaf. I, I just thought the olive leaf, I thought the idea of uh, an olive branch just derived from this story. You know, the, the, to me, the olive leaf is a sign that there, veg, there is vegetation on the earth again, right? It's, it's like a um, fairly straightforward kind of empirical sign that the flood is over and now there's vegetation again. And then then that, then that 
image has become kind of totemic of a peace offering subsequently. That's what I thought. Yeah, I, I, I checked that. I, that's what I thought as well. But I can't remember because I did this two months ago when I thought we were going to get on to Noah and, and, then, we, and then we didn't. And so yeah. I'm, I'm not certain. Someone can, uh, someone can write in and say we're right or wrong. But that's what I was assumed yeah. as well. But then I checked some things. And I found this thing saying it wasn't a peace symbol in the Jewish tradition. So I was a bit confused. But yeah, I'm sure since then it has been used. And I th- I mean, it must have come from that. But anyway, someone can write in angrily and say, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> I checked all this but two months ago. And I have a very short memory these days because I've got so busy. I barely know what I'm doing week to week. But um, You're doing well. You're doing well. Thank this you. is going really well. They, oh, we're smashing this one, yeah. Um, yeah. We are smashing Noah. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm up to... Thirteen in the yeah. in eight thirteen in the six hundred and first year in the first month the first day of the month the waters were dried from off the earth and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold the face of the ground was dry in the second month on the twenty seventh day of the month the earth had dried out then God said to Noah go out from the ark you and your wife and you your sons and your sons wives with you bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Yeah, so there you've got that be fruitful and multiply thing, which obviously is said to to the animals and to humanity in Genesis chapter 1. So this is repeated now, you know, in this in this recreation. Yeah. And then it goes on to God's covenant with Noah, which is another subheading. What are they called? Just subheadings? I never know. Yeah, that. I mean, is it, yeah, these are, as I'm sure you know, these are not in the original text. These are just given to us by the editors of yes. the translation to help us to understand the sections. Yeah. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So this bit obviously is very interesting. I made a note a while ago, and I'm going to see if I still agree with myself. <laughs> uh, I, was, I, I wrote, is God saying that the reason he did it, that is the reason he did it or because man is evil there's no point and this is just how people are right so yeah i was trying to work out when he says i will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth is he saying that that i was trying to figure is it because man's evil that he did it or is he saying because man is just inherently evil there's no point even doing it that wasn't do you see what i mean yeah i think so yeah, I mean, the way I read that is that um, even though the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, I will never again curse the ground because of man. I, I kind of read it like that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's possible that the grammar there isn't particularly helpful in the ESV translation. Yeah. Because it's a bit ambiguous, isn't it? I've got some weird marks on my Bible there again. I'm going to check the, what's it in the King James? Is it the same? Uh, I'd have to find my King James. I'll go my King James, don't worry. Um you go for it. Uh, which is it? Thirteen. Uh, twenty-one. Twenty-one. Eight, eight twenty-one. Oh, no, I'm in the wrong bit. Hang on a sec, guys. I've met, these pages are tiny and they're stuck together. Don't worry. <laughs> this is all live podcasting. Um, 
Yeah, okay, here we are. Uh, where does he say he shall never again do it? Yeah, here we go. Oh, yeah, here we go. And the Lord smelled the sweet savior, savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Is evil. They have a lot of italics. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. Hmm. Yeah. yeah it doesn't really. Yeah. It doesn't really clear it up. It's the same. It's probably the. the yeah, I'm sure it's a, it's a probably ambiguous in the in the Hebrew as well. Um, we're going to just make some comments on this. Yes. Um, so here you've got Noah building an altar to the Lord. So this is like um, and then offering every clean animal. So this is Noah acting in accordance with the actions of the righteous men who've gone before him, notably Abel. Um, when the Lord spelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Now, this is uh, the, the idea of the, the sacrifice being a pleasing aroma, aroma evokes the, the, the New Testament. And I think it's probably Old Testament as well, actually. I shouldn't just say New Testament, but but certainly the New Testament idea of propitiation um, which is, I think the word is, is halasmon in, in the New Testament Greek, which is, which is the word that's used to describe the, the sacrifice of Christ is, is, is described to use, uh, sorry, it's used to describe the atonement. So when God is propitiated by sacrifice, it means that he is, as it were, made pleased and that his wrath is, um, his wrath is satisfied. Um, so here, what's going on is Noah is op- offering animal sacrifice, which propitiates the Lord and atones for his sin, which is a foreshadowing of the ultimate and final sacrifice in Christ. And indeed, that's the that's the way Christians understand the whole sacrificial system, you know, in the law of Moses and so on and so forth. Um, so that's an important thing to to see there that there's that that dynamic of of animal sacrifice, blood being shed for sin in order to propitiate God and to make an atonement for human sin. And I think that's the best, that's the best way of reading that, that bit there. Okay. And in verse 22, while the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not see, cease. Just so everyone knows that I'm a, as polemical as you, Nick, I've written in my margin, chapter nine, verse 22, contra eco loons. Nice. So we both got that in there. Yeah. One's <laughs> bound to think of that. Um, so I've got some annoying marks on my Bible. That's very annoying. Oh, you know what? As well, I've got another interesting. The word "pleasing" there, nikoak in uh, in Hebrew, that relates etymologically to the name Noah as well. So there's a there's an interesting um, linguistic connection there between the concept of propitiation and Noah's name. You know, so just just an interesting. Yeah, you won't get these details on any other podcast, guys. This is. Uh, yeah. This is this is the nitty gritty. Yeah, Jamie brings the details. I bring the naive questions and banter, as we've said before. Um, so let's go on to nine. Yeah, here and we God go. We're ble- getting through this. Oh yeah, we're, we're getting into it now. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you." And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So, I mean, that goes into a quote there where 
and, and it finishes, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And then the quote yes. ends. So, so that where's the quote? Coming, suddenly going into quotes that I don't totally understand. Paulson has talked about so, this. It goes from plain text to a quote. Is it there directly yeah, so, quoting God? Yeah, so God's speaking from verse 1, halfway through verse 1, all the way up until verse 7. And verse 6 is kind of oh, yeah. the way that they've done that there to sort of make the point that it's a sort of poetic... Uh, I don't know what it's called. It's a kind of poetic apocue, um, uh, verse six. You know, it's like a you know God suddenly breaks into a kind of song, almost or a bit of poetry. right, right. Yeah, but he's already speaking, as you say, from when he says yeah. "be fruitful yeah. and multiply." Okay, so yeah, okay. So this is the death penalty bit. Whoever sheds the yeah. blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And Porson made the interesting point in his analysis that capital punishment was abolished because we stopped treating life as sacred and he said the next thing would be abortion and it was and if you look at the dates he's right in 1965 the death penalty for murder in britain was suspended for five years and in 1969 this was made permanent and it was not until 1998 the death penalty was finally abolished in britain for all crimes but look at it 1965 death penalty for murder suspended 1967 is the abortion act so porson yeah. was right that once you stop treating life as sacred why not have abortion and um yeah and of course you've got the paradox here that life is so sacred that the punishment for taking life must be death. Obviously, that's a paradox, but um, it's, I mean, it's why I'm pro-death penalty, like the majority of people in Britain who believe in a death penalty for child murder, serial murder, and terrorism, I believe. There's stats show there's a majority of support for it. Of course, it's frowned upon by our establishment, but uh, you'll find the average person. Now, people say, well, well, the state will kill people and they'll get the wrong person. But with our modern technology, we can sometimes make sure it's the absolute right person. But whatever my beliefs are, it's in there, in Noah, and it seems to be advocated. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I broadly agree with what you said, Nick. I think the point here, and again, this is something that it's so easy to overlook this because we're so used to it. But, you know, the Judeo-Christian tradition has shaped our notion of justice, right? Even for the earliest pages of, of Scripture onwards throughout the New Testament and and Christian history. So here we have an example of the principle that the punishment should fit the crime, right? So whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So if you kill another human being who is made in the image of God, you will pay for that with your life. Now, obviously, you know, there's much more to be said about that, um, and particularly, you know, there there is the offer of forgiveness for everyone, even for murderers. Um, there is grace, you know, we can find grace and forgiveness in the eyes of God through Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, this is, broadly speaking, how justice should proceed. So people who kill other people should themselves suffer the death penalty, according to Genesis chapter 9. Now, this isn't to say that that can just be applied easily in any society, uh, because as you say, there is always the there are always other things to consider, like the state. You know, do we want to give that kind of power to to this state, or can we? Is our criminal justice system up to to this? Uh, you know, up to this kind of standard where you can where you can actually carry this out in a just way? And those are different questions. But I don't I don't think that you can be I don't think you can be really consistently against the death penalty, and to be you know somebody who takes scripture really really, really seriously, because as it says here, you know, God Himself says that man is made in his own image and it, the penalty for killing another human being is death. And um, yeah. What about the fact that people tend to use, I mean, I, I saw a lot of conservatives or alleged conservatives recently, it was a few months ago, speaking out against the death penalty. 
maybe it was in reference to the Lucy Letby case, but but they were all speaking out against it and they were citing Christianity and things. It, it, would they cite the New Testament and say that 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 takes precedence over this in Noah? I don't. I don't really. Un, I don't really know what part of the New Testament they'd look at. They might. They might sort of make a generic appeal to the mercy of turning the other cheek God. and so on. Something to do with Christ teachings. Well, turning the other cheek isn't about the state or the civil power not punishing murderers. It's about Christian discipleship. How you act as an individual when you're wrong towards someone else. Um, so no, I wouldn't say that at all. I think that. Um, I think that uh, God invests civil authorities, whether they're kings or governments, with the power to wield the sword, as it says in in Romans chapter thirteen, which is in the in the New Testament. Oh. That you know, the power to wield the sword is, is specifically to do with killing, um, and I think that uh, that the death penalty is just in certain cases where where murder has been committed. Or was they just cite the Ten Commandments? Well, the Ten Commandments says, "Thou shalt not murder," so. Would they say it's a murder by the state? I don't know. Oh, what do you mean? Oh, I see what you mean. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, they could do that, but but the Ten Commandments doesn't say thou shalt not kill in a generic sense. It says thou shalt not murder. It doesn't. It doesn't preclude the possibility of a justified a justified killing, such okay. as in a war or or the state um, yeah. putting someone. I to just death. noticed people. I think people like Lawrence Fox a while ago were posting. I kept seeing posts, and they were sort of saying why it's not you know christian to kill and stuff was i i am pro death penalty so i i and i thought well it's in nowhere it is so i you know well it's it's this is i think all of this kind of stuff when people are against war as well i mean i don't want to get into like really really controversial territory here, but when christians are against war i think it's often a kind of um it's a it's a it's an attempt to simplify what is actually a complicated issue right so uh, they 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 don't want to be pro war because they don't want to be pro killing other people. But the the Christian justification for war in just war theory is always to do with with love. It's to do with protecting people out of love and bringing about justice out of love for other human beings. Um, and it's the same thing here with the death penalty. You don't you don't uh, you know people are not uh, executed um, out of a, a spirit of vindictiveness or hatred, but out of um, but because it's just to do such a thing and it shows respect for humanity. And as David Porson quite rightly points out, when you abolish justice in this case and you allow murderers to go around killing people and not suffering the consequences for their action, it degrades society and things get gradually worse and worse. The principle of respect for human life is is diminished and then all other kinds of things follow. And I, I don't think he's wrong to draw a parallel between the death the abolishment of the death penalty and an abortion, because I think I think the principle is the same in both in in both cases. And on a political level, it was a radical leftist that that campaigned and brought about the uh, the beginning of the abolition of the death penalty in this country. By the way, yeah, like a yeah. communist guy or radical leftist. And could I say as well, Nick? You know, um, people who are convicted of murder, you know, theoretically, let's say, convicted of murder and face the death penalty justly, those people in a Christian society would be given every chance to, uh, to repent, to uh, make their confession to a priest, to make their, make their communion, to be reconciled to God, you know, fully and completely. But that does not preclude a just, the just outcome being the execution of a, of a murder of that murderer. Does that make sense? Yeah. They would repent and still be killed is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, and that would be and that would be the right outcome. That's the system Jamie will be campaigning for when he runs. Yeah, but I mean, for his yeah, local no, constituency. I mean, listen, <laughs> I mean, I, I, the door. 
<laughs> Listen, I mean, I, I am in favour of the death penalty in if it's if it's a if it's a, a you know a, a premeditated, proven murder. And I think that when you see when you see people who have done, you know, I mean, let's just let's just go into this thing as we're talking about this. Like, I read this story uh, was a while ago. I found it so disgusting. I couldn't get it from my mind about this man who had killed. He was he was the boyfriend of this woman, you know, and he'd he'd basically got off his face on on drugs, you know, broken into this woman's house, uh, killed her, killed her son who was like eight years old, and then um, beaten. I think it was with a hammer or something like that. He'd beaten her. I think she was like a twelve year old girl. This woman's daughter beaten her senseless with this hammer, taken her upstairs to her bedroom and raped her while she was dying. And now. You know, to my mind, like this man who's now obviously in prison, he deserves to die. And the reason he deserves to die is because of the is because of the the blasphemous desecration of humanity that he has presided over in those actions. You know, he should not be allowed to live. Our society should not allow a person like that to to carry on living. He should be put to death by the state, and that would be just because he has murdered two children and an innocent woman and obviously committed unspeakably disgusting sexual actions as well. So I think that natural justice, even apart from scripture, I think natural justice tells us that that is so. And the idea that it's merciful or compassionate to allow people like that to live, I think is just deeply mistaken. I agree completely. There was that case of Arthur, the kid who was filmed being tortured by was it step parents or something but anyway they were, whoever it was his guardians were torturing him they were poisoning him with salt and all kinds of things and they were filming it so we knew they were doing it because they were filming it and, yeah. and it was it was so horrific i was reading it thinking there's just no way these people should live and actually there's no death that we could even give them that's good that's good enough because their death will be much much nicer than the torture yeah. he went through so actually yeah. it's the very least we could do that's how I feel. Yeah. And you saw all these confused posts and you get these, or not on that case, but on uh, a recent case, there was all these people posting, yeah, they're a monster, but, you know, the state shouldn't kill. And it's a very sort of glib. People haven't really thought it through. They just make a glib kind of reactive statement now. It's a kind of just the de rigueur thing to say. It's kind of like feminism. It's just a knee jerk. Oh, we, sh- we can't kill anyone though. Why is that? Why can't we kill the person that tortured the, the, the 12-year-old kid and poisoned his food and all this kind of thing, or whoever or yeah. Arthur was and, and the one you just cite? Why can't we kill that person again? Well, the British people say we can because they overwhelmingly say in polls yeah. that we should, and that is the wisdom of the people. That is vox populi, vox dei. Yeah, well, it's it's something that liberals and, and libertarians are uh, united on, isn't it? Uh, libertarians don't want don't want it because they you know they're you know they don't want a state, they want a small state, or they want you know they want you know anarchy. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean they don't want the state, so they don't want the state having the power to kill. And I do understand that. It's just that that's not that's not my belief. I, I believe that God ordains civic powers and he gives them certain responsibilities and duties. And one of the responsibilities, the primary one, I would argue, is to keep law and order. And the death penalty is, is part of that. Yeah, and maybe it's sophistry, but I sometimes get around that by saying if we had a state that was just enough to recognise that it needs to reinstate the death penalty for certain heinous crimes, that state would be wise and therefore it's a the kind of state I could probably back our current state, you go, would you want these people doing it? No, but the kind of people that would do something so wise would not be these people. Do you think that's sophistry or a fair point? No, no, I think that I think that is a fair point. I don't think this this current regime, this current culture would 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 bring it back. I mean, even it's interesting the thing you say about the the opinion polls. I just don't think the establishment elite would ever bring it back. And I think an established, you know, I think the only way I'd support it anyway would be if there was a 
a Christian government, you know, either sort of formally or, you know, made up largely of Christians. That's the only way I, I think I'd support it because, you know, obviously this can be misused. I mean, you know, Christians have been put to death by the civic powers and the state for the whole, you know, two millennia. So, you know, we don't want, don't want to be glib about this and say that this is easy or straightforward. Right. It's a principle of justice, which is the important thing. The The implementation of it is a different question. Yeah. Yeah, and if you're someone like me who believes in the people, people tend to get it right. They're against immigration. They're against. They're pro death penalty. The people just tend to be much wiser than the yeah. current our current rulers. That's why I say Vox, they believe Vox, that, that. Yeah, they believe that men and women are are real yeah, things. They just you know, know yeah. the common sense of the people. Whereas we've got these ridiculous <laughs> elites. But that's a difference. If you're like the people in my football team, they've explicitly said to me, "Well, I don't think people do know anything. We have to tell them what to do." Whereas I believe yeah, in the exactly. wisdom of the people, so we're never going to agree. Um, yeah. Could I just, sorry, if we finish talking about the death penalty, I did want to just talk about just what's gone before. I know we're running out of time. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so verse verse one there, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So again, that's the repetition of Genesis chapter one. Uh, you've got here, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. Some people see that as a kind of degradation of the original creation mandate where there was a harmonious relationship between human beings and animals. They're saying now that, you know, this this relationship will be more problematic, let's say. The other thing is that um, here uh, the animals are given to the human beings to eat. So this is the beginning of human beings eating meat. Some people, such as Alquin of York, uh, who is a... Uh, an ancient figure, I actually forget where, I think 8th century, might have been slightly later, ninth century maybe, uh, he said uh, that the reason for this is because all the vegetation on the earth had been destroyed and so human beings needed to eat meat because there was no, there were no plants, there were no crops at the time, which I thought was, I thought that was quite interesting. He talked about the, um, the unfruitfulness of the world. Uh, but then also the other thing you see here is it's not just human blood, which is sacred, but it's also animal blood as well which is why there is a prohibition given um, uh, to mankind not to eat animal blood. Yeah, I saw which that. Is, and, yeah. And so that's actually re- that, that, um, that taboo is carried all through the Old Testament. And then it's even taken up in the book of Acts where there's a, there's a dispute in the early church as to whether um, animals, uh, animal blood could be eaten in, in any way. Yeah, I noticed the thing against animal blood. Um, when, yeah, it, that is the, but you should not eat flesh with its life. That is its birth. Um, one yeah. last point I actually forgot to make, which is really interesting. I got this from Bible Ref. Um, following the first recorded murder in Scripture, God allowed Cain to live and, in fact, to yes. thrive on the earth. With this new beginning after the flood, however, God will require death for the intentional justified killing of another person. So it's a break with what we saw in Cain and Abel. Well, this is, yeah, this is a really important point, actually, and is something I made a note of as well. Um, the reason that God is said to, well, this is the speculation, I suppose, but the speculation is the reason that God lays down the death penalty in this kind of um, more strict way here is in order to keep order. So, you know, earlier on you said in uh, chapter 8, verse 21, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nothing's changed. Human beings are still going to do evil. They're still going to do violence. So the reason you need the death penalty is to restrict and preclude or you know, restrict, diminish the amount of violence that there's actually going to be by by having by having this in place. So it's a way of keeping order. Right. So it's a recognition, a sort of advancing in thinking and going, oh, actually man's such a, just a, so inherently evil in ways that I'm just going to actually have to bring in the death penalty. This is, right, it's kind of like yeah. a change in, in, in the nature of understanding. Is it God-like 
understanding man more than he did and going, oh, I tell you what, he's, he's just a bit evil. I'm just going to have to bring in the death penalty. Well, I think it's an anthro- that would be an anthropomorphic oh, yeah. view of God. I mean, and David Portson does talk as though... He does a lot. He talks about God's God emotions. Is a, God, is, God is a big man in, in the sky, which I, I, I understand why he's doing it. It's because he's teaching people. But God, God sees like the beginning. Me, you believe that. <laughs> well, you know, God sees the beginning from the end. So he, he, he's not, in my view, God isn't even in time. So th- this is given to us in, in sort of pictures in order to help us to understand things from our perspective. So prior to the flood, there wasn't a strict death penalty. Violence multiplied on the earth. The flood and the subsequent imposition of the death penalty makes the point on God's part that the death penalty is necessary. That's the way I put it. Okay. All right. We're going to be able to finish, hopefully. You said you've got to go in about 18 minutes, but we've got enough time to finish. So let's continue and go to this next part which is uh what, what would you call it nine eight do you call it nine chapter nine verse eight is that how you say yeah 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 that's okay. right yeah then god said to noah and to his sons with him behold i establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you the birds the livestock and every beast of the earth with you as many as came out of the ark it is for every beast of the earth i establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you, between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So the rainbow is the covenant that uh, reminding God to never, never flood again. That's something yeah. you don't really think about or in, until you, I, you know, I, had, I didn't realize that until I reread Noah. Yeah, absolutely. So here you've got, so God makes various covenants throughout scripture. And you could say that he made one with Adam, which which Adam broke. Uh, and I think that's probably a legitimate way of thinking about it. But this is certainly an explicit covenant that make, God makes with, with Adam. So a covenant is, uh, it's, it's a bit different from a contract. A contract's a little bit more sort of forensic. A covenant is a mutual personal commitment with con- consequences, either, you know, good or bad for, 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 keeping the terms of the covenant or breaking the covenant. So a covenant is made with a representative, as I was saying earlier, uh, like man is the kind of covenantal head of creation. And here you see that. um, You see, I establish my covenant with you, that's Noah, your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, uh, and every beast of the earth. Uh, So the point being that the covenant is made with Noah and all those other people that all those other people and animals that are mentioned are, as it were, included in the covenant by virtue of Noah. So Noah is the kind of representative. The other aspect of covenant, which is important, is that covenant has a symbol in scripture. So the symbol of the covenant here is the the rainbow. But you also have other symbols in scripture. For example, you have circumcision, which is the sign of the covenant that's given to Abraham. You have the Sabbath day, which is the sign of the covenant that's given to the, the people of Israel. And then, of course, in the New Testament, you have the sacramental signs of baptism and Holy Communion, which are given um, by Christ 
as a sign of the covenant, the new covenant, which is made, as Christ says, the new covenant in my blood, which is what he talks about at the, at the uh, Last Supper. So really, this is a kind of sacramental sign. The, the, the rainbow in the clouds is a, is a sign, it's a symbol of God's intention never to flood the earth again. Again, you know, I mean, this, uh, where does it say it? When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. That Porson makes a strong point there, doesn't he? He says that the rainbow is for God and not for humanity. I mean, again, I would say, actually, I think it's the other way around. I think the, the, the rainbow is, is God's pledge to us, like a, like a wedding ring, that he is not going to do this again. So it's for us. It's his action, but it's to remind us that this is what he's pledged to do for us. So that's the way I'd see it, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, he says, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. It's between them. God has to remember it. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, yeah but I, the I, thing I, is, I, God doesn't forget things, you know, so <laughs> yeah, so he doesn't need reminding of things. So what's the what's the point? The point is to remind us that he remembers, not that he yeah. needs to remember it himself. Yeah, I thought Porson was a bit strict on that point as well. Um well, yeah, he does. He does have a somewhat anthropomorphic view of God. Sometimes, you know, he doesn't. The way Porson talks about God, it doesn't really seem to me that he thinks that God exists outside of time, and that God doesn't change. But I think that both of those things are absolutely necessary uh, in order to have a coherent view of, of who God is. There is something perfect as well about the rainbow. That feeling of like there's been a lot of rain, then suddenly the sun comes out, and you get a rainbow, and that nice sort of feeling of relief. And it kind of is is a perfect symbol. For the yeah. end of a, a period of strife and, and flood. Yeah, and, and peace, you know, and this is, it's it's obviously extremely sad that the rainbow has been taken and distorted and it's become a, a sign of rebellion against God and, and um, I've just written in my notes, shattering sin. Now stolen by leftist activists. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I forgot to say it, but yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. that is... And and of course and of course the the NHS propaganda during yeah. COVID as well, which was a terrible. Couldn't, thing. couldn't be a much more perfect subversion of all that's good. But hey, there we yeah. go. That's what those people Indeed. do. Not the NHS Indeed. so much, but the uh, the leftists. I'm not saying the <laughs> NHS are the epitome of evil. I think this next bit is is important as well, and, and then we'll get yeah. to the end, which is yeah. Noah's descendants. So the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Is it Hapeth or? Hey, Jay- yeah, Jay- Japheth. Yeah, Japheth. Yeah, this one. Japheth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ham yeah. was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, lay it on both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived for 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So this part, when I first read it in my layman way, I was like, well, this is like a kind of a sitcom ending. We've had the main (laughs) resolution. Now we get a kind of comic moment at the end of Noah being drunk and just having his wine and being naked and saying, well, what's he like? It's Noah. You know, we've been through all this struggle. It's like a fun ending, like in a cartoon. But I also thought, um, is it a kind of, 
man immediately going back to what he's like. You know, he's just been through this whole thing of the flood. He's the one righteous man that God saved, but he still gets drunk and is naked. And he's like, this is what God said about man being inherently evil and in this case, sort of idiotic. But then I was trying to figure out why he was so harsh to Canaan. He doesn't seem to do anything except discover him. I mean, he's not maybe as modest. He doesn't look away like the other the others do. But then I read up on it and, and looked at a video, and it it turned out it was it was uh, to do with the then their neighbors being the Canaanites, being the nasty neighbors of Israel, as the video put it, and that it was an origin story to justify why Canaanites were just evil. It's like well, it goes all the way back to uh, to this and 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 before. So that was one sort of historical explanation. It was just a way, it was just, you know, a bit like the good Samaritan was like, okay, Samaritans are bad, but in this case, look, one was good. Canaanites were just bad. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it is a very interesting final story. So if you take it that this is uh, Noah committing sin at this point, then I suppose you could say that this is a sort of common trope in the old Testament that you have, you have righteous men who on the whole do well, but they're still flawed in some way. And again, from a Christian perspective, we would say that's because all human beings are flawed, even very great ones. And we all need to be redeemed by the only the only perfect man there's ever been, who's Jesus Christ. However, having said that, um, I actually looked to the church fathers on this because I knew you were going to ask me about this because you mentioned it to me before. And um, it's, it's actually interesting because Alcuin of York, who I mentioned earlier, said that Noah did not understand about wine. And it's actually an interesting point because wine and alcohol hasn't actually been mentioned specifically in the previous chapters. So Alcuin is speculating that Noah kind of created wine and he didn't know what he was going to do. And he drank loads of it and it made him drunk. And that's, and that's what happened. So he was actually, all right, maybe he made a mistake, but it wasn't sin as it were. And uh, actually John Chrysostom, who's a very serious church father of the fourth century said the same thing, you know, Chrysostom and Alcuin completely unrelated historically. So it's interesting. They both came to the same conclusion on that. The, 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 so a couple of other things. So the, the sin of Ham, who is the father of Canaan, uh, is that he, in that culture that I think would have been extremely disrespectful to go in to see your father un, you know, uncovered and then essentially to, to leave him and to go and tell people about it rather than dealing with it in a respectful way, which is what Shem and Japheth did. And that's, that's why Noah responds in the way that he does. So he says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now, as the reason that, um, that's the reason we're told that Ham was the father of Canaan in verse 18, because, because uh, Noah's going to place a curse on Ham's descendants. Right, right. Now, what, what Augustine, what St. Augustine says about this is that this is actually, it's more, it's not so much like a curse being uh, placed, you know, sort of in a, in a causal sense, but it's actually a prophecy, a prophecy of the Canaanite conquest, because if you take it to be the case that essentially you've got these three guys, you've got Shem, who's the father of the Hebrews, who's the father of Hebrew nations, Japheth, he goes west and north into the Mediterranean world and the European world. So he's basically the father of the Gentiles. And then you've got um, Ham, who goes, he sort of hangs around in the Middle East and goes into northern Africa he is the father of the enemies of Israel. Like, you know, all these people who are mentioned, like the Arvidites, the Hamathites, the Sinites, the Archites, the, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Canaanites as well. Now, when you come to the Canaanite conquest, so what, what happens there is you've had the people of Israel wandering around in the desert after they've escaped from 
Egypt. Then they arrive at Canaan, which is in the promised land, which God has promised to them. The iniquity of the Canaanites is complete by that point. So the Israelites actually sort of um, bring God's judgment upon the Canaanites by conquering them, by expelling them from the land, and then by taking the promised land for themselves. And so so that's the reason St. Augustine says that this is a prophecy of the Canaanite conquest. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Meaning that one day Shem, or the descendants of Shem, in the form of the Israelite people, will come and they will destroy the land of Canaan, or at least they'll expel expel the Canaanites from their own land, and that this will be a kind of fulfillment of that prophecy that's made by Noah. Does that make sense, broadly speaking? Yeah, but is it does that then mean that that person in the video was right, saying that this is therefore an origin story of Canaanites doing bad stuff, going all the way back to Ham, yeah. looking at Noah's nakedness and telling people about it? Yeah, I like think so. I mean, I just, I was yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's, I, I'd, I'd question sort of the implication of the, the phrase origin story as though, I don't know, is, is it, I don't know what's, if that's being said cynically or not. I guess he's but, saying a kind but, of retroactive justification. It, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, yeah. Somewhat, I mean, so I don't he's think using it's it sort of comically like a comic book. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's like a just so story or anything like that. I think this is something that you see throughout, throughout, I mean, especially these early parts of uh, Genesis we've been talking about, haven't we, about the line of, godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain, uh, the Canaanites are clearly a, a continuation of the ungodly line of, of Cain, you know, those who sin against God, those who rebel against God. It's not that people within those people groups can't turn to the Lord and repent and be different from their culture, broadly speaking, but you do see this happening throughout the scripture. You know, the, script, the scriptures are, the scriptures, the Judeo-Christian way of thinking is, is or at least well, certainly the Jewish way of thinking is much more kind of, um, it's much more to do with uh, tribes, nations, groups of people, as much as it is to do with individuals as well, because that's un- unquestionably a part of uh, of the Judeo-Christian tradition is our understanding of the individual. But there is also a strong kind of tribal, collective, national sense to peoples as well. Yeah, and I know what you mean by cynical, because then he's saying it's not true. It's just engineered in there to justify propaganda or something. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that was just yeah. one video. Um, I preferred my explanation that it was a, a sitcom ending, but... Um, <laughs> and that is pretty much. Well, it's a, it's a strange ending. It's a strange ending, ending isn't it? But I suppose, but I, I think there is something in my point as well. I'm not just being flippant. That after you've had a big story like this, you know, and you and, you've, and then you've had the rainbow, it's a little button on the end of the scene. It's like, oh, and then there's this scene of Noah getting drunk. There's a kind of lighthearted scene at the end, although it does then curse someone. It's not that lighthearted. But I think narratively, <laughs> it kind of makes sense, some sense there that you know that's a narrative technique. You can't just end yeah. on the the high point of tension, or you know what I mean. You could have ended on the rainbow, well, I guess. Yeah, I think also it's a human story, isn't it? This is what human beings are like. We have we have uh, moments of of great spiritual uh, highs, you know, obedience, blessing, and so on and so forth, and then we sin against God, and we need to be uh, forgiven and restored to Him. So yeah, I think there's a there's a very realistic aspect to it as well. Well, and me saying that is not doubting the truth of the story either necessarily. By the way, it's just there are choices yeah. in the telling, which is called the récit and histoire in literary theory, where you <laughs> decide how you tell it. Why are you laughing at yeah. that? That's, that is what it's called. No, no, it's just great. I mean, I love the I love the terminology. It's very good. Yeah, it's just it's, one is the the, the the things that happen, and the other thing is how you tell it. Those are just some yes, literally theoretical terms I've just thrown in from my English no, MA. That's no, great. It's really distant good memory, but um, and that's pretty much. No, but that's that's a good point because they didn't even if this happened, they didn't need to put it in there. Exactly, it's how you tell yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so and then it, that's pretty much the end. I'm saying because next is nations descended from Noah, and it gets very very like. 
all the uh, descendants very complex. And then it goes on to Babel. So I reckon we've ended, and especially because Noah dies at the end of, of nine, chapter nine. And that's 950 years, though. Not bad. Yeah. yeah not quite as innings. old as Methuselah, but decent innings. Yeah. Yeah. Good innings for Noah. Well done, Noah. Is there anything else you wanted to say before we finish on it? We've pretty much. I mean, we're, listen, we've we've done we've absolutely smashed that. That's four. That's four chapters packed with yeah. content. I think we've done a. I think we've done. I a think that's job probably there. the best analysis of Noah you'll find anywhere on the <laughs> internet. Maybe not in the books and stuff, but definitely on the internet. It's going to be anything from Peterson. I think so. Well, we haven't. We've hardly even mentioned Peterson, have we? I mean, I watched his entire lecture on this, and he doesn't actually even get to Noah until about like an hour and a half in. And then his analysis of it seems to be along the lines, you know, it's a similar sort of thing to what he says about um, Cain and Abel, isn't it? It's like you make proper sacrifices and then things will go well with you. And I sort of think, well, yeah, I mean, that's true. You do make proper sacrifices and things will go well with you. But what what Peterson always wants to do is apply that to the kind of imminent psychological sphere. And I agree with it. It does work on that level. You should make the proper sacrifices. Um, But there is also a sense in which... um, this applies not just to the sort of imminent psychological sphere, but to the spiritual and to the eternal sphere as well. And it also applies, as I was saying, allegorically, it applies to Christ as well. So there's a verse in, I think it's in Psalm 4, which really reminds me of Peter. And every time I read it, it says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. And I think those two things have to come together. Right. Yeah, it's such a funny point about Peterson. 90 minutes on dominance hierarchies amongst rats. And then it's like, oh, there's this guy, bloody guy called Noah. It's like, it's going to be about Noah. Why are you talking about yeah. the dominance hierarchies? And you've got to let the other rat win sometimes. And anyways, it's, like, it's about Noah, mate. Listen to the current thing where we just bang yeah. it out yeah. line by line. Though there is the Exodus series, to be fair where they do go through yeah. it line by line with Peterson and the brilliant Dr. James Orr, who's been on this show, but they don't do it with Noah. So we've done that for you. Hope you enjoyed we, it. We've done that. And Jamie, once again, where can people find you? Yeah, so my, the podcast is called Irreverent, and you can find it on uh, irreverentpod.com. So that's like the word irreverent, but with a D at the end of it as a pun, irreverentpod.com. And I'm on Twitter at JamieFranklin40. I actually changed my handle so that people could find me after comments that you made, Nick, about how my previous handle was too obscure. So JamieFranklin40. And I'm the vicar at Holy Trinity Church in Winchester, uh, which is a fantastic Anglo-Catholic church. If you live anywhere near Winchester, please do come by and visit and uh, worship with us. Brilliant. And if you want to support this podcast and help us do this kind of thing, and who else is doing this kind of content, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. Leave a donation there. It's a digital coffee. It basically means give me some money. But you leave a comment, I'll reply to them all. Buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. Or you can go to my substack, nickdixon.substack.com. It's just five quid a month to get all my articles and links and musings. And um, so nickdixon.substack.com, buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. You've got a substack as well, Jamie. Yeah, jamiefranklin.substack.com. Yeah. Go to it's, called, it's called, mine's called Good Things. And I try and write about positive, uh, spiritual sometimes, but life giving things and stay away from like, you know, toxic and difficult political issues. Oh, good. And mine's the exact opposite. So uh, <laughs> go to both our Substacks. And hopefully we'll do another one of these because we had, we had so many people clamoring for them. I guess we'd be on to Tower of Babel next. Oh, yes. Yes. Another another Jordan Peterson favorite. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, also a great. And then the Call of Abraham, of course, where things really, really start going, you know, getting going. The only way we are like Peterson is that we're, in my Bible, we're up to page seven. <laughs> so yeah. We're on to, that's our, what, third episode uh, mine's page nine so you know, yeah so um, we're getting um, through it but that's yeah i mean it's pretty thick well, i mean it's little ways stuff, to go guys where where my bookmark 
<laughs> I mean, the thing, the put a video people I mean, held up the Bible there and turn it on its side to show that we've got about a million podcasts left to do. Yeah, absolutely. But the thing is, is that this speaks to the inexhaustibility of the wisdom and depth of the scriptures. You you can never come to an end. So even even if you got to the end of it, we just have to go right back to the beginning and do it again, because you and I would have changed and the context would be different. And there's more that the Holy Spirit wants to show us through the scriptures, you know, so we can go back to them over over and over again. And it is our destiny to do this podcast series as well, because I dreamt about it several years ago, which we discussed in an earlier episode. Yeah, if you absolutely. want more esoteric remarks so <laughs> alright well thanks Jamie and we'll see you again uh, when we do this next time a pleasure thank you very much